Our next speaker is John Thompson. He's going to speak to about two ways in ancient Egyptian religion and Israelite temple theology. John uh, finished his BA in Biblical Studies at UC Berkeley and a PhD in Egyptology at the University of Pennsylvania. His current research interest continues to focus on Egyptian priesthood and rituals as well as ancient inheritance laws and covenant theology. John spends time most every week helping with Harvard University's Giza project, creating a state-of-the-art database of the pyramids, non-royal tombs, and artifacts. He also serves on Harvard's executive board of university chaplains. John has been a full-time employee at the Church's Seminary and Institutes of Religion for 23 years and currently serves as coordinator and institute director for Boston, Cambridge, colleges, and universities. He's married to Stacy Keller from Orem, Utah, and they have nine children and their first grandchildren just last, child just last month. Thank you, John. Maybe. <laughs> Let me try this one. There we go. Got it. Yeah. I was controlling audio there for a minute instead of video. <clears throat> All right, so let me begin uh, with a remark on my title in order to get us on the same page. Uh, given our Judeo-Christian background and familiarity with uh, such phrases as choose you this day, no man can serve two masters, men are free to choose liberty and eternal life or to choose captivity, captivity and death, or the straight is the gate to eternal life and broad is the way to destruction. You may have thought my remarks were going to focus on a way of good versus a way of evil they're not. Um, for that approach, I refer you to an excellent article by Noel Reynolds a couple years ago in the BYU studies looking at the two ways in antiquity in the Book of Mormon as it pertains to the good and evil uh, ways. So my approach today is not to speak of two roads that diverged in the wood, but rather to highlight the, the two successive ways or divisions in a singular path of ancient Egyptian funerary processions and netherworld journeys, and to compare these to the Israelite temple theology to see if such juxtaposition might illuminate anything. As Robert Frost also indicated in that same poem, way leads unto, or on, yeah, un, onto way. Way leads onto way. <clears throat> so first we'll turn to the actual, um, an old kingdom funerary procession. And I'm collecting these from a lot of the non-royal tombs in the, in the area, which was the area of my uh, particular research um, as a, a grad student. And um, the funeral procession typically began um, at the estate of the deceased. And you can see over to the far left, a bunch of mourners um, passing out and, and crying. Um, and then over here to the right, kind of off screen, uh, would be the, the coffin being carried away. And this was kind of a, a common scene. Uh, again, you can see the mourners over there clustered to the left, and then um, the coffin being carried there in the middle. And this is uh, some, you know, broken. Um, but um, what occurred next after they carried the coffin away is that they typically got into a boat. And, and usually you would have um, a coffin and perhaps even a uh, statue um, uh, being transported on these boats together or in separate boats. But we have um, uh, a watery transportation that occurs as part of the funeral. So the Old Kingdom elite tomb of the vizier Tahotep, which is depicted here, 
um, depicts a funeral procession which appears to contain a reference at the beginning of the procession to a weaving house. And that is, um, I can't remember if I have this highlighted or not. Nope, not in this moment. Let me back up. So, um, actually, you know what? I'm going to pause there. Let me just keep going. So this watery um, transportation occurs, and they're typically aiming for a, an area that looks similar to this, where you have this T-shaped um, uh, shape. <laughs> so, and then you see here on this one, you have these door uh, icons or uh, hieroglyphics on the left and on, or left and right. And, and then right above that, actually, I think I can do this better here. Uh, there we go. So, so you got the door here, and then right above it is the hieroglyphic for um, heaven. And so... The idea is that as they leave the home and carry the coffin, they're now entering into a, an area that contains the doors of heaven. And so they're going to be entering into heaven by passing through this, this location. And um, the doors of heaven in a different um, tomb... were replaced not with doors, but if you see on the, the left and right here, so right here, and this little upright, and over here on the right, you have the same hieroglyphics. Instead of the doors of heaven, we have the hieroglyphics um, for way. So you have a way on the left and a way on the right. And so this is kind of where I'm getting my title or the idea of the two ways. Um, this particular building that they are bringing the coffin to is uh, referred to as the Ibu. It's the purification tent. And if I can back up here. So the hieroglyphics here, so this is the tomb of Kar. And again, they've come, you can see the T-shape at the top there. And, and they've brought the tomb, or sorry, the, the uh, coffin and, and the statue to this area. Um, and the hieroglyphics right below the T area, or right above the boat, state that, that they're transporting in peace to the purification tent for purification in the, in the following of the well-provided one. And so... So this idea that, that the first thing that they wanted to do with, with the deceased is to purify them. So in the purification tent, or the ibu, um, some things are kind of depicted in this particular uh, tomb. We have on the left um, the hieroglyphics indicating that these are the requirements um, of the craft of the lector priest. And you have these two chests down at the bottom. And you have some chests kind of at the top as well uh, with some sandals on top of one, um, a hand shaped uh, on the other one over there, and then a little bag um, on top of the one on the right. And that bag on the right is a, a bag that's typically used for holding... Um, it's, a, it's the same icon that's used, or the hieroglyph that's used for um, eye paint. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's what that's referring to, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and then on the right, 
it says requirements of the ibu, and then jot, which is um, a meal. And then you have at the bottom some bread and a, a foreleg of an ox and, and, so you, and a jar of drink. So you have the meal itself kind of depicted there. Um, and then you have this interesting diagram between those two divisions of the ibu. Um, you have this kind of uh, lattice work at the top as well as down the middle. Um, and so I'm going to kind of address all of those. So in the coffin text, we have a discussion of the ibu, and it mentions, Hail Osiris, um, so-and-so, you go down, you, cl you clean yourself with ray in the lotus pool, you put on clothes in the purification tent, or the ibu, and live behind its curtain. So it mentions this curtain. And then possibly referencing this curtain, the coffin text mentioned elsewhere, um, a curtain that Ptah has embroidered and that Tait, she's the goddess of weaving, um, has woven herself. So in the, this is kind of a bad slide, so sorry for the graininess of it, but, but this is what I was actually referring to earlier. Um, right there um, is a hieroglyphic that uh, Juncker believes is the house symbol at the top and then underneath is a woman holding a weaving apparatus. So as part of this watery journey, it mentions the idea that they're going to um, proceed from the weaving house to the beautiful west and before the great God, and that's what the text says up there. Um, and so some scholars have assumed that this weaving house was probably a reference to the, the manor or the state where they left, um, but it, it's hard to say exactly what the weaving house is. But, but going back to this image, um, the idea that we have a curtain here that kind of has a uh, embroider, you know, kind of a, a weave look to it, and then the weaving above the top there, um, many scholars think that we might, you know, be having here depicted those things that were mentioned in the text. Um, so, so we have this purification area with a curtain hanging, and then in the bottom right, again, one of the requirements of the uh, place was a meal. And then just directly to the right now, I'm going to kind of slide us over there. Um, so you can see the way in the far left over there. But now we're on the other side of the, of the ibu. And, and if we have here then a, a depiction of kind of a, a sacrificial meal occurring. So you have over here um, some of the cattle that are being bound up. And the hieroglyphics up there uh, this says kas, which means fettered or tied up. You have that little squirrel at the end there, which is basically the ropes that they tie them up with. And then um, in the middle, you have that same word that we had inside the purification tent, a meal. And then you have the actual depictions, the same depictions down there on that little table right there at the feet. Um, I guess I should be doing this so you can see. So here's the meal. Um, and then we have uh, right up here, so um, typically the formulaic jed medu, so words spoken by the, the embalmer, the weti priest, and the words spoken by the, um, uh, the kite, um, and which is you know, a, typically a goddess who represents a bird um, in, in this moment. So, so we have this, in connection with this ritual watery journey, we have a meal, we have um, 
the sandals and the perhaps the eye paint, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and we have the weaving house. Uh, and continuing on, what occurs next is as they leave the ibu, is they, you'll see the boat kind of being depicted on top of these wavy lines that are kind of interesting. And um, most scholars believe that what we're depicting here is that no longer are they actually on water, but they're dragging the boat across a desert. And so these are kind of the waves of the, of the sand. And, um, and so we have this depicted in multiple ways. I was going to slip through these. And, and you can see here uh, kind of the watery journey at the bottom. And then in that kind of the, well, let me do that again here. Right up here, we kind of, the watery journey kind of changes and then we get those wavy lines down here again. And so, so the idea is that we have the two ways, I think, being depicted. You have the, the way of on water and then you go through the purification. If that's what this is, it's kind of hard to say because it doesn't have all the same iconographies we had earlier. But then we have this way on land um, following. And moving on, what they're aiming for um, is ultimately, um, so you can see the wavy lines over here too. What they're aiming for is another uh, location or building, which is called the Wabet. So here we have um, a lector priest holding the jar in his hand. And it says right above his head that this is the lector priest who attends to the house. And then another lector probably um, inside that little secondary room there. And then the text inside the room simply says, this is the inner room of the wabet of attending. Um, and then you see all the at the top, right, a whole pile of offerings up there. And the Wabet is typically viewed as the place where people are brought and um, their bodies are prepared for burial. And so this is where the embalming would occur. And, um, and you have over here on the right, you've got um, Iba, which are these ladies here um, with their arms up. They're dancers, okay? And then you have a clapper right back here. So even though the top line basically indicates that this is um, kind of a mourning moment, right, where they're, they're mourning of the death, but they're also celebrating right, in this morning, dancing and clapping. And, and, um, um, and then we have uh, the friends of the Acacia House, and they're actually uh, mentions up there at the top, too, that they're mourning by the two Acacias. Um, so what they're aiming for at the Wabet, and the Wabet is typically seen as being very connected to the tomb and very much a part of it. And so, so the procession can go to the Wabet. Um, it could be shown going a little bit further to the tomb. So here, here we have the tomb area. And again, we have the dancers with their arms up there right behind them, and you see the clappers right behind them. Um, and, and again, some offerings, right? So we have an, a second set of offerings. We had the, the small little meal mentioned inside the ibu, but now we're kind of getting a bigger meal, and it's a much grander meal. And so here we actually kind of get a really big depiction of this idea of bringing um, 
the deceased all the way. You see the dancers once again here. Um, and, and then the, there's a ramp that leads up to the top of the tomb. And there's a, the statue uh, up there where they're kind of doing a statue ritual. At the very top, they're doing offering rituals. Um, and the, uh, the text you know, mentions Wenechet, uh, which means simply literally to offer. And that's why his hand is extended out there in that cup shape up there, which I think um, we're going to hear about a little bit later. Um, and, and so, so the Wabet and the tomb, you know, this, this end of the journey, this is kind of where we're culminating. But again, they're bringing at the bottom register there just tons and tons of, of animals and food, and, and we're, we're having a, a grand feast, right, as part of this experience. All right. Um, here's another depiction bringing the coffin and you see at the very far left then a, a big pile of offerings and, and slaughtering an animal okay and again more so so what are these two ways right so what we have basically is the funeral procession and, and it moves literally in Egypt most of the people live on the east side of the Nile but they were buried on the west side of the Nile so they're actually moving from the east to the west to bury their dead and so they're following the, you know, the, projection, uh, the trajectory of the sun as it sets. And so they start with the estate and they move along right through that watery journey of where they're purified. And then they go to that uh, desert journey, which is where the Wabet and the pure, the pure place. Sorry, I don't think I mentioned that, but Wabet literally means pure place. And, um, and then they actually enter the body in, into the uh, burial chamber. Um, so this is kind of the, the general flow of the funeral procession. One last thing I'll in, mention in connection with this, that um, in their later iconography, and also but in the pyramid text, as they're going west and they arrive at the tomb, um, they'll depict in some of their netherworld books, you'll have um, depictions of goddesses and, and trees, and I've already written about this and, and published it, um, but, uh, but the idea that there are these the goddesses and they're pouring out water and giving food for them to, to partake of. And you see on this one over here, you have this, uh, in the bottom corner there, you have like a little pyramid-shaped tomb entrance. And then you have this mountain horizon um, uh, area where they're trying to basically go west and they go through the mountain horizon or into the tomb and then they descend into the underworld or into their tomb. So the idea that they're meeting this goddess, though, on the western horizon is interesting because um, what the pyramid text mentions is that um, they come to this goddess and she feeds them, right? She either nurses them or she feeds them the, the drink that they're having. And then they're told that they're going to go to the sky, you know, having, uh, going through this process. They're going to go to the high mounds and to the yonder high sycamore in the east. So they're in the west, meeting this western goddess uh, and the tree, and, but they're going to end up in the east and uh, where there's another tree. And so this is the point I want to make as well, that we have not only two ways, but we also have two trees that they're kind of interacting with, uh, one in the west and one in the east. Okay. So reviewing real quickly then the Old Kingdom funeral procession, we have them leaving the estate, they go on a watery journey to the purification tent. There's a concept of weaving and sandals, uh, possibly eye paint, and a sacrificial meal, right? 
Um, and then we have um, them passing through the two ways uh, or the doors of heaven and begin a land journey to the pure place or the wabet, which is at the tomb. And there's an elaborate sacrificial meal as part of that. And then they ascend the ramp to the top, make more offerings, and then inter the body. So in addition to this funeral procession um, inside of the non-royal tombs and also in the royal pyramid text, there is an offering ritual that I think kind of comes close to this idea, but um, because there are two different contexts, you have to really understand them separately. But it's just interesting to kind of look at them right now to, to, just to see the, the idea that they kind of um, are mirroring each other as far as this journey is concerned. Um, in the offering ritual, what will typically happen is there's an, an initial libation and a sensing, and then, um, and then there's a, a natron washing and a, a small, uh, simple meal as part of the opening of the mouth. And, and then they're going to anoint um, the openings of the head, so the two eyes, the two ears, the two nostrils, and the mouth. And they're going to also uh, apply eye paint as part of that anointing uh, area. And then they clothe them in linen. And Tait is mentioned in these linen moments. I'm not sure if I have that in here. But then there's a sensing that kind of divides that initial grouping of rituals from the following group of rituals. And the second group of rituals are similar. Right? So again, we have another natron washing, but and not a simple meal, but now a grand meal. And then we have not clothing in simple linens, but we have clothing in regalia, so kingly and queenly kind of uh, uh, symbols. And then we have some additional rituals, such as bringing the foot and execration, which we heard about earlier, you know, getting rid of chaos and your enemies. And then some final uh, washings and libations. And then we actually have priests who are um, carrying seals and are referred to as sealers uh, in this moment. And so it's kind of interesting um, progression of rituals that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Okay. So there is also um, a Middle Kingdom coffin text that's been called the Book of the Two Ways. And it may be a misnomer. Some of the more recent, there was a published uh, volume out last year that kind of really tackled this, this, uh, volume, or this, uh, this book and raised a whole bunch of questions of, about our assumptions about it. But we do have um, this line in the Book of the Two Ways that was important for why you know, they had this idea of the two ways. Because it mentions that the entrance of the roads of this um, Rostau, which is kind of the idea of the, um, the funeral, um, sorry, the uh, necropolis, right, where they're burying the person. So the entrance of the roads, basically, to the necropolis, which are on water and land. So we mentioned those two ways earlier in the funeral. Um, so we have this water and land kind of uh, idea of being the roads to the necropolis. Then we have, um, this is the two ways. And so some people thought that that text was kind of referring to those squiggly lines. You see the you have a squiggly line on the right, it's kind of blue in color. Then you have a squiggly line on the left, it's black in color. And there's a whole bunch of spells. Um, so this is the Book of the Two Ways. It's usually found at the bottom of a coffin. And, and so were these the two you know, journeys of a water versus a land journey? Um, the more recent research is calling into question the land journey, suggesting that it might be more connected to the fire concept that's right down the middle, that line down the middle is kind of a lake of fire. 
And uh, so we have a water and fire, perhaps, you know, journey. Um, but anyway, it's still kind of all up in the air. But the main thrust of the Book of the Two Ways has a similar uh, flow, right? We have the, the deceased is about to enter into the bark of Ray or to the boat. Worthiness is affirmed. They get on board the boat. They travel down some waterways. And there's demons. They're creating barriers that need to be overcome. And they have fiery... Um, you know, knives in their hands, and um, they stop at the field of offerings, and, and they prepare a meal, and then they continue their journey, either on land or fire, to the, into the necropolis area, and then there also is a mention of, of ways of confusion, right, so these paths that are all over the place and are confusing the people in, in contrast to these two ways. Um, and then it also mentions a ramp, you know, as we, as we saw, saw earlier where they do a ramp and bury the deceased. So, so if we kind of compare this to ancient Egyptian temple architecture, um, we could, in a very generalistic way, say we have two ways, right? We have a courtyard way, and uh, John Gee did a great study on the different uh, access that priests had to the temple, and you have Wab priests who are allowed to go into the courtyard, but you had to be initiated into, uh, to be a hymn or a servant of God or a prophet to actually go into the, the hypostyle hall, which is where those um, circles are, so representing pillars, right? This big pillared halls that you think of when you think of the Egyptian temples. That in order to enter into those pillared halls, it's kind of like the sacred place of the temple. You had to be a, of a higher priesthood. And then, you, and then there was the actual the inner sanctuary beyond that. Um, so now to compare it to Israelite temple theology in conclusion, um, we have in Malachi, right, this idea that I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come. And so we have two messengers mentioned here, right? There's a messenger who prepares the way and then there's a messenger in the temple and and so we could, again, once again, think of the courtyard as the domain of the Aaronic priests who prepare. And then the Lord comes to the temple. And, and of course, the New Testament likens this to John the Baptist and to Jesus, um, the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priests. And, and thus we have these two ways. But, but to make this even a little bit more, I think, interesting, if we look at... Um, the temple, as Ezekiel uh, prophesied of, we have um, an interesting uh, center, right? The center of this complex is not the Holy of Holies, which is where the letter K is. The center is the altar and the courtyard. And so as you come from the world, wherever you are, right, you ascend three platforms to the altar. Then, once you have arrived there, you're now ready to take a second journey, right? So my suggestion here is that we have two ways. We have the way to the altar, and then you have the way to the Holy of Holies. And, and that arriving at the altar, interestingly, has a lot of the similar ideas that you would have inside the Holy of Holies. So you have an altar, but, um, you know, there's been a lot of research about this, and again, another paper that I did on, again, on the, the, the two ways, uh, sorry, the, the ladies of the horizon, um, 
you also had the tradition or the, of, of, the, um, of the goddesses um, or the goddess or the, sorry, the pillar Asherah, right, being erected in the courtyard of the temple right next to the altar. So you have a, a tree of life symbol in the courtyard. You have the altar, and then you have the, la- the laver of water, you know, this, this uh, again, this watery um, uh, symbol. And so that, so the same kinds of concept that you would have coming to the full tree of life, right, the one that represents eternal life, of a, of a tree that, that provides water and um, and fruit that represents eternal life. You, you not only would you have, as John depicts in the Holy of Holies, or in the celestial kingdom, you also have it outside at the in the in the courtyard, and that kind of maps along with the Egyptian concepts of a western tree that you arrive at first in preparation and anticipation of receiving the full tree. So. Um, so we obviously have a lot of repetitions in the temple, and this becomes, and so this is really the point of my whole discussion. As we're reading texts, right, as we're reading scriptural texts, we've got to be careful that we're, that we're understanding, like, which path we might be on. Um, I think some texts may be referring us to uh, the ironic way, right, that preparatory way. So, for example, we have um, Ben Sira that mentions, come to me, eat of your fill of my fruit, speaking of the tree of life. Those who eat of me will hunger for more, right? So this idea, you come, you get, but there's more. And those who drink of me will thirst for more. And then we have Alma 5, right? Unto those who do not belong to the church, I speak by way of invitation, saying, come and be baptized unto repentance, that you also may be partakers of the fruit of the tree of life. And so you could read this as, Baptism is the, the initial tree of life that we get to partake of. It's a promise of eternal life, and, but that there's more. And so then we go to the Book of Mormon, and we have Lehi's vision versus Nephi's path. And Lehi's vision, if you recall, is the idea of the people in the world, this great spacious field, and everybody's pressing forward, and they get on a path, and they hold on to this rod, and they get to this tree. But is that... Is that the final tree, right? I don't think it is because, as we know, people leave the tree as they are uh, being persecuted by those in the great and spacious building. So it could be then that Lehi's vision is kind of a representation of that, that first preparatory path, that ironic path. But then at the, and that's at the beginning of Nephi's record. At the end of Nephi's record, we get to um, see, I think, the secondary path. After he says, you've... After you've come to the altar and you've repented and you've been baptized and, you, and now you've entered the gate, right? Now you're, now you're moving into the temple. You've got to press forward with the steadfastness of Christ, having entered into the gate, having a perfect brightness of hope. And so we have that lamp, having a love of God and of all men. And we have that altar of consecration and, and feasting, right? And we have the table of showbread. And if we need to feast, have love, and have hope as we move forward, and thus, and endure to the end, and behold, thus saith the Father, right, as you arrive at his uh, place, he shall have eternal life. And so, um, so because there's a lot of repetition in the temple, we have bread being offered at the altar, we have bread in the showbread table, we have bread in the Holy of Holies, right, that confirming bread of the hidden manna that's in the pot. We have light in all three locations. 
So we have the, the, the daylight, and then we have the light of the lamp, and then we have the light of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And so because of these repetitions, when we're reading scriptures, we've got to be careful, is the light that we're talking about contextually, right, the preparatory light, or is it the full light, or is it, you know, the, again, the second light, and then leading to that fullness or that confirming light in the end. Um, so um, Elder Packer once gave, whoops, gave a great um, charge to seminaries and institute teachers when he said that, uh, that we were to start every year teaching, right, with a brief overview of the plan of, plan of happiness. And he says, if you give it at the beginning of the year and revisit it occasionally, it will be of immense value to your students. He said, to design it, right, the plan of happiness, as a framework on which your students can organize the truths that you will share with them. And then just recently, Kim Clark gave a talk, and he said that the plan of salvation, as we typically draw it, right, the, the circles and whatnot, he says, that's not the plan of salvation. And I was like, hallelujah, because I threw that image out a long time ago, because I feel like the plan that God has given us, right, is the temple. And the temple not only incorporates the ideas of where we lived and where we're going, as we typically draw those circles to represent, but the plan, the temple also depicts the plan of covenants and the plan of ordinances and the plan of of priesthood, right? The Aaronic and Melchizedek. And, and all of every principle of the gospel fits into the temple as well. And so the more we understand the temple, the more we'll understand the plan of salvation. And the more we understand the plan of salvation, then I think the, that we'll have the framework to organize all the truths uh, of the gospel. And uh, so I'm grateful that we have these meetings, you know, regularly to learn more about the temple. Um, anyway, that's it. Sorry, I don't...